I'm Susie on in for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset, your source for everything happening in Chicago and around the world. The World Cup kicked off in Qatar this week, but it's been a rocky start for the host country. It's the culmination of a 12-year build-up that's been marred by controversy over the initial bid, human rights concerns and the environmental impact. After years of preparations, an investigation by The Guardian found over 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal and Bangladesh have died in Qatar since 2012. Many of those deaths were directly linked to the construction of World Cup stadiums and infrastructure. In a controversial press conference, the head of FIFA accusing Western countries of hypocrisy. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. Whether it's banning the sale of beer at the stadium or scrutiny over human rights, soccer's biggest event has been the subject of more controversy than years past. Joining us now is Brian Sandalo, contributing sports writer at the Chicago Sun-Times, Susan Dunn, associate professor in residence at Northwestern University in Qatar, and last but not least, we're joined by Craig LeMay, director of the Department of Journalism and Strategic Communication at Northwestern University in Qatar. Before we get into the more heavy topics, uh, Brian, the U.S. finished their first game in this year's World Cup with a draw against Wales on Monday. And of course, we had that big upset this morning with uh, the Argentina-Saudi Arabia game. How do you think the U.S. will stand against the other teams in the U.S. group, the group that they're in? Well, their next match is against England, the favorite to win the group and maybe one of the favorites to win the tournament. That one probably won't go all that well. They're probably going to have to beat Iran, the fourth team in the group, by a considerable margin to get by on goal differential. But I feel like this team is just a little too inexperienced Mm -hmm. for this stage. And they're really geared toward 2026 when the World Cup will be here. Anything past the group stage would be a great accomplishment, and I don't even really expect them to get out of the group. Yeah. What do you think, Craig? Oh, in terms of the quality of the football? Well, for the U.S., uh, the group that the U.S. is in, but you could also talk about the quality of the football. I know how you were feeling about that. As an American, I have a different idea of what football is. My mother was from Wales, too. I'm sorry, Mm. but I had a different rooting (laughs) interest the other day. Well, the U.S. has typically invested more in American football than soccer, but outside the U.S., it's it's flip-flopped, of course. What do Americans think about the World Cup at this point, in your opinion, Brian? I think that there's usually more excitement for it because it's in the summer normally yeah. that there it's a little bit of a less crowded sports calendar. But right now you've got the NFL starting mm-hmm. to kick in the high gear. College football is just about to hit its crescendo. The NBA is going, the NHL. And American sports fans are still traditional and they still expect the World Cup to be in summer. This yeah. one is not in summer and if you set aside all the other controversy, a lot of the matches are, are still at an inconvenient time as well. So I don't quite sense the same amount of excitement as there will be, as there was the last couple World Cups, and certainly for the World Cup coming in 2026. Mm-hmm. Well, Susan, you spent over a decade in Qatar. Can you tell us why the country would have wanted to host the World Cup and it, what are they hoping to gain? Yeah, so Qatar is obviously a very small country, but they've got aspirations on the global stage. And so when you're a small country with some of the world's uh, 
largest amounts of oil reserves, but you don't have, say, the uh, national population to have what's called hard power, so military might, like, say, the U.S. does. They're trying to exercise what we call soft power, so trying to have the influence on the international stage via other means. And one of the key pillars for that for Qatar has been by hosting international sports championships. The World Cup is obviously the greatest feather in their cap, but they've also hosted just a dizzying array of other world championships, uh, athletics, swimming, gymnastics, et cetera. And all of these are designed to really develop their national brand internationally and try to develop a good reputation. Yeah. Well, Greg, generally, what is the global perception of Qatar and what is the U.S.'s relationship with the country? Well, the global perception was strong until they won the World Cup. Before that, it was about this liberal outpost in the Middle East. Then it changed uh, when they won the World Cup. They won it in 2010, the same time Russia won its cup. And since then, the coverage has really been critical uh, about corruption surrounding the bid, um, not just uh, Qatar's bid, but other bids. And the focus on the kafala labor system, Mm -hmm. uh, much of that coverage, if you want to talk about it, I think has been uh, weak, lazy. Uh, the Guardian figure you just recited, it was the New Yorker yesterday. It's a very problematic figure that just reflects poor reporting. But Qatar's uh, ambitions um, are particularly obvious now with the World Cup, but uh, it's not even the greatest quality of football if you wanted to watch good football. But um, Fox Sports is using our space in Northwestern to cover this thing, and uh, it's been interesting to watch how they approach it. Well, why has the coverage been weak? What do you think is missing? Well, a major problem is that there's no reporters on the ground there. Uh, I run a journalism program where I have to worry every time my students walk out the door whether they'll be detained or worse by the Mm. police. Uh, You've already seen incidents where reporters who are perfectly credentialed are being stopped by security guards. And if you live in Doha, you know there's a security guard everywhere. So somebody didn't get the memo on that one. But uh, it's a country without a free press. Um, And reporting there is just very, very difficult. And as a consequence, since Qatar doesn't report in a thoughtful way about the very serious issues that are there, uh, it leaves it to the rest of the world to do it. So you learn about it through New York Times and The Guardian. Well, Susan, expand on that. Uh, How different is the situation on the ground in Qatar versus what we see in the news? Well, I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is that because of what Craig just said, the majority of reporting that's done is done from outside of the country. And there's a lot of just mindless repetition and reposting of just poorly written and poorly uh, sourced Mm. stories. And so if you're actually in Qatar, the situation on the ground is just not anywhere near as dire as you would think from watching the news. Just as a quick example, the the reporting of the number of deaths in Qatar is based on a misunderstanding of what what those death rates are. 85% of the population in Qatar are expats at various economic, socioeconomic levels. And so a lot of people have been there, like me, I've been there 15 years, there's people who have been there 20, 30 years. So there's a lot of deaths from basically natural causes or a car accident. All of those get reported in the national death statistics, and they get misinterpreted primarily in Global North Press Mm -hmm. as all these people who are dying because of the World Cup. It's just poor reporting and a lack of really understanding what life is like on the ground. Well, I want to shift slightly. Uh, Brian, um, the, the host country, made a surprise announcement two days before kickoff, which was no alcohol sales during the match. Uh, Why is that? Is is this just a culture clash? 
Well, there's a lot of different theories. One that it is a culture clash, and but there's also a theory that it's well. First of all, it's still being sold in certain high, I guess, high money areas, mm -hmm. VIP areas. That frankly, it's just a way for those people to feel more special i guess that's not the most articulate way to say it but what that announcement coming so close to the world cup really made a lot of outside observers worry that if they decided to take back their word on alcohol sales what else will they take back their word on frankly i'm not shedding too many tears for anheuser-busch i think they'll be okay regardless of whether they could sell beer and matches but it's more about what that decision says about the rest of the tournament and other promises they might have made that may not be kept interesting and, and to know drinking is not illegal in qatar um, and, and FIFA managed to pressure Brazil back in 2014 to allow al alcohol sales in its stadiums. Do we know why the governing body was not able to make a similar change this time? I have not seen anything either way. I would be uh, speaking uh, speculatively if I answered that one. Craig? I think it's because Qatar wields outsized uh, financial influence. Uh, the decision about beer is a kind of decision that if you live in Doha, you, you're familiar with. You think a matter is decided. And then out of the blue, you get this capricious, arbitrary decision that changes everything. You, nobody's really responsible for it. Um, so, but Qatar's uh, FIFA reported yesterday that for its, this World Cup cycle, it's going to have revenues a billion dollars greater than expected. And one of the things that's happened in just the last couple of weeks is that a number of major cuttery companies, which are all, of course, closely tied to the government, have stepped up as sponsors. So they're just pumping cash into this thing. Oh. So FIFA is, you know, it's FIFA. Uh, so, Craig, um, the country is also getting heat for uh, the labor they use to construct the stadiums for the series. What happened there? What happened with the labor issue? Yeah. It's a real issue. I think uh, the, this Guardian story we keep talking about is just sort of the uh, an example of poor reporting. But it lacks context. So the, the system of kafala labor, which is tied to sponsorship, dates to the British protectorate period. Uh, Qataris didn't invent it. And racialized labor exists not just in the Gulf, where it's very conspicuous for reasons Susan just described. It's everywhere in the world. And so if you're going to talk about this aspect of human rights in sport, it's not just a sports story. It requires somebody who can write thoughtfully about migrants and labor, as well as the particular situation in the Gulf. So... Um, that's why we get the stories we get. Yeah, and, and how, what about FIFA? How's FIFA reacting? How are her teams yeah. reacting? I think FIFA's getting, uh, the, the amazing thing to me is that, you know, the discussion about human rights and sports really began with Beijing's bid for the 2000 Olympics. And it was only two years ago we were talking about Rule 50 in the IOC and whether athletes could protest in Tokyo. But um, what we don't think about is the outsized influence these international sports NGOs have, IOC, FIFA, World Athletics, all of them. And then you have, in addition, you know, what's missing for people from the global south in any of these discussions are the activities of Western and Northern corporations and their financial institutions, uh, from banks to the IMF and the World Cup. So you have an empire, a sports empire, that certainly includes these very powerful sports INGOs. And we used to think of them, I guess, as presumptively virtuous, and I should hope that day's over. Yeah. Well, Brian, uh, you've written about how some players and teams are reacting to some of the politics surrounding these games. What have we been seeing? 
one of the points I made in my column for Saturday's paper was that England and a handful of other teams, their captains were planning on wearing captain's armbands with a one yeah. love campaign on them. Well, FIFA came down on them and said, if you do that, you'll get a yellow card. And if you keep doing that, you'll get another yellow card in the next match, which would mean suspensions. So England and other teams decided not to do it. I can't say I was surprised or disappointed. That's just sort of how it goes, is that when it comes time to make any sort of stand, I feel like a lot of teams are just going to do what they have to to win matches. And that's not really a judgment on them, frankly. It's more the position that FIFA and the mm-hmm. people that voted for this for this tournament to go to Qatar, it's their responsibility. In the end, the players are just players who have worked towards this their whole lives, and they're put in this position where they have to make these very difficult choices. Right, and some of the, um, the teams have said that they, you know, ahead of wearing the armbands, that they were willing to pay whatever penalty, just not willing to take a yellow card before a game. Right. And that if, let's say, England's captain Harry Kane gets suspended for a match after wearing the armband a couple of times, that would be a major blow to England's chances. So I think the English FA and other sides probably made the calculation that they'd rather have their captains on the field than make this statement. And, uh, you know, Craig, does the host country of the World Cup, whatever the year, typically face this much criticism? Yes. It's pretty well documented now that uh, in the year or so run up to the tournament, it's true of the Olympics too, you get a barrage of negative coverage. And then the rights holding media take over, the Fox and the Skies and the BNs. And for them, it's a party. If you're watching Fox, you've seen the party. And then afterwards, and this is what I wonder about, everybody goes home and we forget the whole discussion, including the discussion around the legacies of the, of the tournament. And one of the legacies here is supposed to be the further reform of Qatar's labor laws. Yeah. Well, FIFA is asking audiences to focus on the sport, not their controversies. Susan, do you think it's a privilege to ignore issues of politics and corruption when talking about a global event like the World Cup? Uh, I think it's not only would it be a privilege, but it would be for people to actually do that would be unlikely for a small number of fans. But I think for the majority of fans, when we get to these large international Events. I mean, the FIFA World Cup is the most watched sporting event on the planet by mm-hmm. far. Over half of the world's population will uh, watch at least one minute of one match. Most people just want to enjoy the football for the football. It's a time of national pride. It's a time of the globe coming together at the same time while they're competing. And so keeping controversial issues alive during that fan experience, I think, is really challenging. And then, uh, Brian, as we wrap up here, how are you navigating the World Cup this year as a sports writer and as a spectator? Well, I've been trying not to watch as much as possible, partly because of my hours at work. It makes it difficult to watch. I'm trying to stay up on it so I can talk about it. But I'll just say this. I'm not going out of my way to watch it. And as we've said, it's not the best soccer in the world. Uh, It's the biggest tournament, but... For me, I'll take the Champions League and the English Premier League over international soccer any day. But 
I'm not, let's just say I'm not bending over backwards to watch matches. Noted. That's Brian Sandalo, a contributor, sports writer at the Chicago Sun-Times. Susan Dunn is an associate professor in residence at Northwestern University in Qatar. And Craig LeMay is director of journalism and strategic communication at Northwestern University in Qatar. Thank you all for joining us. This episode of Reset was produced by Brenda Ruiz and Andrew Merriweather. It was edited by Ethan Schwab. Enjoying having Reset whenever you like? Then subscribe to our podcast. We share great conversations just like this every day of the week and on Saturdays. And when you subscribe, leave us a rating. It really helps more listeners find us. That's it for Reset. I'm Suzy Ann. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.